Back in 2003, I was tired of sports. I'd been at Sports Illustrated for about six years. And while this might sound strange, the games, the practices, the races, it had all grown stale. So I left the magazine to take a feature writing job at Newsday, where I'd roam New York City and chronicle the lives of random people I'd encounter. The homeless musician in front of Ground Zero, the naked cowboy standing in Times Square, a bunch of hip-hop artists selling their CDs in front of a music store. And what I learned, and what has stuck with me, is the skills I acquired chronicling balls and strikes and touchdowns and goals, well, it translated. It carried over. And I came to believe that being a sports writer wasn't merely an end, but a training ground. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Bruce Arthur, longtime Toronto Star sports columnist who, about a month ago, became the Toronto Star's coronavirus columnist. This is episode number 152. Let's sling some yang. All right, Bruce, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. We're, we're, we're Zooming with each other, and I, I joked with you that um, I can't tell if Zooming is going to be a new thing, is going to be the big thing in 2021, or if no one's ever going to want to Zoom again. Would you weigh in on that issue? I will say this. All my high school buddies are in Vancouver, and I live in Toronto, so it's about 3,000 miles apart. And we did like a Zoom session with all of us. And we'd never done that before. We'd never done, we could have done video chats before, but we finally did it. And I honestly laughed so hard that I felt like my abs were going to look like Brad Pitt in Fight Club. Like it was awesome. It was one of the best moments of the whole pandemic was hanging out with my buddies online. But that being said, maybe I'll just want to just fly and go see them next time. So you, um, I mean, really interesting plight right now. Like you're, you're a very well-known sports columnist for the Toronto Star and you've written about sports and sports and sports. And now you're basically a daily coronavirus columnist. And I was kind of wondering before I even get into work, how that actually happened. So two days before Rudy Gobert popped or four days before that, I'd come back from California uh, covering a hockey trip. And I was telling people like on that trip, they should be putting athletes in boxes, right? Like, cause they're out in the world right now. Someone's going to get it. And then Rudy pops. And the next day they asked me to write a Rudy Gobert story and not just in sports, just about how it's affecting all of society. And then the next day I write one more and I write, um, you're not going to miss sports pretty soon because pretty soon sports isn't going to feel like something you need in your life because a lot of other stuff's going to happen. And that night, the two main editors of my paper, Irene Gentle, the editor-in-chief, and Catherine Wallace, who's the managing editor, uh, emailed me and they said, do you want to become the coronavirus columnist? Um, basically, you can write anything you want about the coronavirus, which is like asking someone, you can write anything you want about anything in the world because this is the only event in my lifetime, which has touched basically or will touch everyone on earth. And it took me a day to think about it. And I knew I was going to do it, but I just wanted a day to kind of process my mind how I was going to do it. And I said, yes. And so I've been doing it for a little over a month now and writing like five to six days a week, almost it feels like. And it's been super it's been the most interesting challenge probably of my professional life. All right. So what are the main, um, what is it a, is it a, they always say, you know, sports writing prepares you for any other kind of writing. You know, if you can write about, they always say that I actually, I tend to agree with it. If you can write about sports and the highs and lows and the twists and turns and you can write about anything. And I wonder, has the challenge been in the writing itself or in the finding what to write about or tone or texture? What are the main issues? 
That's a really good question. Um, so I think I, I agree with you. I think that good sports writers can write anything. I think we're the best deadline writers of anybody in the entire journalism world by necessity. We spend a lot of time trying to write about stuff where guys don't necessarily want to talk to us and it forces us to develop other ways of looking and writing and, and reporting about things. Um, part of it is story choice because uh, like, think about it. You wake up every day. You want to write about the coronavirus. I'm writing about Toronto, but I'm writing about Ontario, the province, and I'm writing about Canada and I'm writing about the world. If I want to, um, what's the right column today? And that's a huge question every day. And then it's a matter of when you figure out your choice. So like when I started doing this, I started reaching out to whole new source, like sources everywhere. Right. So doctors, nurses, paramedics, um, people in politics, like just started talking to people and talking to people and talking to people. And you wind up with like five stories on any day you could write. So what's right? So that's hard. Tone isn't as hard, I don't think, because I, I, I had an early editor who said like, pay attention to tone when you write. And I've always kind of known what I want. I know what, that, what, a, what a column is supposed to feel like. Um, and then so with this, I, the, everything about it is so powerful. Like this affects so many people in so many ways. That's big. Well, one big part of it though is also it's the responsibility. So like when I used to go to a Super Bowl or when I would go to, especially to an Olympics, Olympics is really the big one for me. Olympics is three weeks of working so hard of pushing your whole self into the job and you want to live up to it. And my first Olympics, I was killing myself and someone came and tapped me on the shoulder and said, you don't have to be more than the person that they sent. Just be the person they sent. And that's enough to live up to it. But uh, with any big event, I'm sure you felt it or like a big moment, you try to live up to the moment. And the, and the privilege and responsibility to write it. And it's a big jump from the Super Bowl or the NBA Finals or the Stanley Cup Finals or the Olympics to this, to something this serious and this fundamental. And it, like you write, I talked to paramedics about how they're burning out already and they feel so alone and they're terrified and they're taking it home to their families and like that's just a different level of responsibility to get it right, you know? So that's what I'm kind of looking at it this way is I've written a lot of sports history and that's what it becomes, sports history. Um, this is history. And that responsibility weighs on me a lot every day. It's interesting because in sports, we oftentimes manufacture rage, right? It's like, yeah. I can't believe the Mets traded so-and-so for so-and-so. And then yeah. you know, we write a column about why it's the worst trade ever. But I think we all are, while we're writing this, are fully aware that it's just a baseball trade and it doesn't really matter. Um, are you writing with anger as you're writing these? Are you writing with fear? Are you writing with, like, do you feel the emotion as you're writing them? Or is that sort of a separate, can you set that aside? I often do. Um, and I find that the best pieces I've written, it's the ones you put your heart into, right? Whether Whatever the emotion is. Um, in terms of this, like, the thing with sports is it matters to a lot of people and doesn't matter, right? So most of the time, like sometimes sports really does matter, but a lot of the time it doesn't. Uh, it just matters to people. And that's a fundamental difference with this. Like when I was writing about how Donald Trump was holding up personal protective equipment at the border, like N95 masks, half a million of them, it's about a week, week's worth in Ontario. Every one of those masks can, can keep some alive and can keep a lot of people alive if, if like because healthcare providers become vectors and all that and I've been talking to so many nurses who are scared doctors who are preparing their wills paramedics who are terrified um, people in the funeral industry who, who are who don't have enough PPE and they're going to pick up bodies in hospitals and long-term care homes um, I, I felt real fear when that happened 
real fear for people whose lives were going to be on the line if those masks didn't get across the border. And that, I, I don't remember feeling that kind of feeling at any point in my sports writing career about anything I'd really written. Like you don't get scared, right? You don't get scared for people in the same way. Um, when, when people are irresponsible about this pandemic, it's going to matter. It's, it's people's lives, right? And I do get mad when I write. I, I haven't written a lot of mad columns. I've written sad, like heartbreaking stuff, right? Like, and, and you feel that too because that's when you do the, the best stuff. Like, and I've written sports columns where I've been crying as I write them. Right. Um, that's happened. Um, I don't think I've really had that yet here, but I've had stuff where I really feel it. And that's the thing with this is we're in this weird unreality right now. Like this, this strange, surreal, profound dislocation from our lives, all of us in different ways. And we all have different challenges. My, I've been pretty lucky in mine, but we all, f it's funny. There's a lot of stuff we don't feel right now. And we also feel a lot. And I think as a writer, as a columnist, I want to put that in. I want to write about something that I really believe in because I think that's where the best stuff's going to be. It's really interesting. Um, my wife and I, like, uh, we, we have a pretty, we have a good life. We live in Southern California. None of our relatives are sick. Um, you know, we take precautions and blah, blah, blah. And we keep waking up in the middle of the night, like four, five, six times. And it's really hard to explain what that is. You know, like, is it, mm. is it the monotony of day after day? Is it the fear of this thing getting spreading more and more? Is it the bungling of a Donald Trump and screwing this up? There's something there that is so unsettling about this that I don't really know how to deal with it. My father-in-law was in, he's, he's English and he was in London during the blitz, right? So they go, they we're going to ship you out into the country and they go, send him out into the country and he's got asthma and his asthma was so bad. They told me he had a better chance of surviving in London during the blitz. And he lived through that for several years. None of us have ever lived through or mo almost none of us have lived through something like that, right? We've lived in this oddly ahistorical time, even nine 11, it changed the way you fly, but for, and it was uh, a lot of people died, but for most people, your life carried on in a fundamentally similar way. There was a piece that was written about this early on. I can't remember even who wrote it, but it said the, the discomfort you're feeling is grief. Um, and yeah, I thought that was, that was a really good way of putting it. This is scary in a different way because I was talking about this with someone today. A lot of this, a lot of the current big problems in the world are about a lack of our, uh, our imagination's ability to handle it. It's a failure of our own imagination. Climate change is like that. It's so big that for some people, they just, one, they don't want to look right at it. And two, they can't imagine how fundamentally gigantic it is, right? Antarctic is melting. That's not something that can connect logically to a lot of brains, right? And it's the same with with how, I, I think, with how fundamentally dangerous the situation is democratically in the United States. I think that, that people don't want to look at directly at how bad this administration is. I knew a guy who, who, uh, who dealt with it early on. And he called it, uh, he dealt with it fairly closely. He called it uh, Lake Karachi, which is the most polluted lake on earth. It's this Russian lake that's full of nothing but awful things. And with the, with the pandemic, it's bigger than it's as big as climate change in some ways. It's, it's bigger than anything we've faced. And so I can't tell you that in a year we're all going to have enough to eat, right? Like, because migrant workers are getting sick, like people in meat plants are getting sick. Um, this thing 
travels so fast and easily and hides so well. I can't tell you that my kids are going to have enough to eat in a year. That terrifies me. I talked to a critical care doctor who bought $5,000 worth of food in February and put it in his basement. Right. And maybe it's because he sees emergencies everywhere. Maybe that's just how his job works. But like, this is different. And the more you read about it and the more you understand it, I think the more you realize that this is not months, this is not this summer. This might not be this fall. This might be year, a year of our lives. It could be two years of our lives. The, uh, Donald McNeil Jr. of the New York Times said the record for a vaccine is four, four years, right? For the mumps. Now we're better now at producing vaccine, I presume. But like, this is, this is bigger than anything we've ever faced in our lives. And so this is what living through history feels like, I think. And it's not always comfortable. You, um, it's interesting. You wrote a piece March 24th, the coronavirus is a truth detector and it's telling us a lot about where we are. And I'm reading it and I'm doing this visually and you can see me. It's almost like a guy with a baseball bat waiting for the juice. I'm waiting that the, you're waiting and you're waiting and you know, someone's going to hang a freaking slider. And then you write, you wrote, it's true. There's like maybe seven paragraphs in, in the United States, the country's fundamental sicknesses have not been put aside for the pandemic and the structural weaknesses of the superpower, the bluff of a tilted economy, for-profit healthcare, the failed state of the Republican Party, and the irredeemable black hole of narcissism and ignorance from its president have not budged. Does writing every day about the coronavirus, do you have to resist the temptation to just do that every day? Because I, <laughs> I would want to... I mean, just today, the, the governor of Georgia uh, announced yeah. that they're going to be reopening bowling alleys. And I, I immediately think of all the hands going in stooping bowl, in stupid bowling yeah. alleys and the pure stupidity. I would, if I were you, I couldn't do your job. I couldn't do your job nearly as well as you do because you have a common of patience. And I would just want to tee off every single day. Do you not have that? Oh, I want to do that. Yeah, <laughs> I do. Absolutely. Because, I mean, I, I, I've been really focused on the United States politics for a long time, partly because I have friends and family down there, partly because I love a lot of big parts of the country, partly because uh, people have been saying it forever. The United States sneezes and Canada gets a cold. 80% of our, or no, something like 50% of our medical equipment comes from you guys. Uh, you're our biggest trading partner. Um, food comes across the border from the United States in huge amounts. Like the, if, if America goes bad, Canada's food supply could suffer. So I worry about that. And the in Canada, what's happened is we have a, we have a, a premier in uh, Ontario. Ontario is 40% of the country. He's not a great politician. He's not a great leader. He cut a billion dollars from public health last year. That's bad, you know, because don't vote for people who cut public health. You're the public. Pretty simple to me. During this pandemic, he has listened to experts. You can argue with the experts, but he has listened. He has not fallen for low-hanging fruit. He's made a few mistakes, I think, but he's, he's shown the capability to be better than he has seemed to be. Uh, that's happened in most of the country in Canada so far. There's, again, there's, there's, it's not all there, but we've been okay. Like we've shown that we can put a lot of differences aside in order to really try to do this. The United States, the polling actually on people who want to stay at home, I think is, is starting to turn to a point where it's much more of a majority now. Mm -hmm. But the fundamental, the fact that the federal government is sending the FBI to investigate shipments of protective medical devices ordered by the states, and they have to hide them in order to get them to their own hospitals to try to save the lives of doctors and nurses who otherwise could get sick and die. 
And not only that, but infect far more patients. That is unbelievable, right? The, that one example, that one thing is unbelievable. It is a failed state. If you saw that happening in another country, you would never want to go to that country again. And I have friends and family there, man. And like, if you guys really go sideways, it's going to deeply affect our recovery and our continued existence as a country. And I think about that stuff every day. Um, but the other thing I try to do in this job is I try to write about the human parts of it, right? Like the parts that, because again, there's the big stuff and then there's the human stuff, which I think applies to just as many people, right? The tragedy of losing people and not being able to hug someone at the funeral, something like that. Like that's heartbreaking. The terror that nurses and doctors feel and like that the living apart from their families and like throwing their, their clothes in a garbage bag on the way home um, and showering as soon as they get home or, or like it's, there's so many human dimensions of this, but yeah, what you talk about and what I wrote about there, the, the illness in America isn't just the virus. And I'm, I'm not the first to say that, but this fundamental fracture in America is so terrifying to me and so enraging to me because the consequences are massive. It is people's lives. And like, it's, it, we just need to do better at electing governments that care about us, I think. Um, it's an awkward time to ask this, but I was going to ask if my family and I could move in with you guys. <laughs> You're not the first person to ask, actually. And, and we, do have, we do have an extra room in the basement. Nice. And, uh, and an eight-man tent that we can pitch in the front yard if we need to. We have a lot of toilet paper. So, we could, we could. Um, wait, before I get into your stuff, I was actually, as you were talking right there and I saw the rage and heard the rage, I'm actually being serious when I ask this. Are you one day going to be able to just go back and write about Kyle Lowry scoring 23 against the Grizzlies? Is that a, uh, I mean, is it going to be kind of weird? It's a really good question. It's a really, really good question. I've had a lot of people tell me since I started doing this. I had a friend of mine who used to be a story writer, became a feature writer at the start. He was really, really, really good. He said, I hope you stay doing this um, because I think you could be an important voice in the city. And that's a, and I've, I've thought about it before. I've thought about if I want to write more than sports because I like writing sports a lot. Sports is fun. Writing Olympics is my favorite thing in the world. Writing a big game is one of my favorite things to do. Like there's, there's, so, many, there's so many aspects of it that I truly love. I grew up reading Sports Illustrated like we all did, right? Like I love it. Uh, the, one thing I found in the last month and I have like two hours of panic every day. Every day I have two hours of, I don't know if I can pull this one off every day. Um, it's still probably been as fulfilling as anything I've done in my career because it feels like it matters. That thing that we talked about, like sports matters to people, but it doesn't fundamentally matter most of the time. This stuff matters. So I don't, I don't know what the next world looks like. I don't know when sports comes back. Like that's a whole other question, right? Like when are you going to feel comfortable in a, in a stadium with 20,000 people lining up for beer and lining up to to piss in a trough, right? Like that's, that's going to take a long time to come back as we knew it. So I might not have to make this decision for a year or two. And when I do, I don't know. I, so far it's only been a month, but I found this to be something really meaningful in a way that sports was and wasn't at the same time. So I don't know, maybe I wind up writing both when I come back, but my worry then is I don't know if you can do both well. Yeah. It's an interesting question. Um, I have a piece in front of me, April 11th, uh, 2020, so about uh, nine days ago. 
and I learned a new town in the process. We just pray for one day that we go without a death. Bob Cajun left reeling by coronavirus. I did pronounce that correctly, right? Bob yes, Cajun. that's perfect. Bob Cajun. Um, I just want to say the spelling of Bob Cajun is B-O-B-C-A-Y-G-E-O-N, um, a town in Ontario. The, uh, yeah. Your lead to this is there's a difference between a quiet town and a silent one. Bob Cajun is neither, and it is both. Some people still wait in line for the Value Mart or Foodland. Some people still drop by the LCBO. The giant farm town pickup trucks still rumble around and people still go to the post office. They used to put names of people who had died in the window there with a nice picture. Recently, they stopped. Bob Cajun was already an anchor for this part of cottage country, a retirement destination, a tourist town. It was sainted by the tragically hip because Gord Downey couldn't find another place in Canada whose name rhymed with constellation or near enough. It helped that it is beautiful here. The line, constellations being revealed one star at a time, works. And Bob Cajun is the Pinecrest town right now. As of Friday morning, one in every seven COVID-19 deaths in Ontario had happened in the little one-story brick nursing home at the top of the hill at the south end of town on the main road in. First of all, it's a fucking great story. I mean, it really Thank is. It's, it's great. Um, I know it says opinion on it. It's not... It doesn't read like an opinion piece, actually. Yeah, they do that just because I'm a columnist and they put it on everything. I don't, I'm not sure why they do that. I get it. And uh, so it's basically, there's a, you know, there's a senior, assisted living, is it assisted living or senior center? I don't know what you... Yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's a long-term care home. And that's where, that's where the bad stuff is really happening. I, actually, in, in, in Canada, we're kind of holding the line on hospitals. The hospitals haven't been overwhelmed that, and I really hope that they don't. Where we've failed is that people in long-term care homes are getting massacred. And Pinecrest was the worst in Canada until one in uh, Dorval, just outside uh, part of Montreal. Um, but it was 29 people because um, they just, they made mistakes in there and just a lot of people died. And in a town that small, everybody knew someone who was in that care home. And it's an old community. It's half of them are 65 and older. And so they asked me to go write about it. And I, it, it, was, it was interesting because there's so many different dimensions of it in that small a town, right? Like even the idea that I had two different people who were 65 and older say, you know, at least it wasn't kids. At least it wasn't nine-year-olds, right? At least it wasn't the Humboldt kids crashing their bus at 17, having their whole lives stolen from you. Um, so even people in town who were crushed by this view it with all kinds of complexity and nuance and thought and honesty. And it was really interesting to write. Wait, so you're, I mean, this is kind of interesting. You're a sports writer. This is not your area of expertise. You don't know any of the people. You certainly don't know any people who work at this place. No. They tell you, we want you to write about this. How do you go about it? Uh, some people, I, I, so they asked me if I'd write it. And I said, okay, does anyone here know anyone from Bob Cajun? And I had some people send me numbers. So I knew there was one person who, who, uh, who'd been up there a lot of years. So they knew some of the more leading figures in the town. So like the head of the Legion and uh, a guy who's, uh, who was part of uh, one of the kind of founding farm families. And, and then I, I Googled and saw that there was a younger guy who uh, was doing a ton of community stuff. And his number was on his Facebook page. And so I, I had some numbers. And every time I talked to someone, I'd say, is there anyone else you think I should talk to? And I just spent a whole day calling people, just a whole day, just calling people. And they were great. They talked for like 40 minutes, um, 30 minutes, 20 minutes. Uh, and I, they, they all wanted to talk. I think pe people, one thing with right now is so many people are shut in. I think when someone calls and they, they ask you the right questions, they want to talk to you. So I got as much as I could out of one day. And then I, I, talked to some more people the next morning and I drove up there and they, one of the people kind of took me around town a little bit and I talked to some more people. Um, Wait, let I, me ask you, when you're up there, you're driving yeah. up there, number one, are you at all, I mean, you have kids, you have, are you 
apprehensive about, I mean, literally catching this and what sort of precautions did you take? I'm apprehensive in the world right now because I have a 10-year-old son who's asthmatic and uh, this is a respiratory disease. And kids actually, this is the blessing of this disease is it doesn't affect kids. But if he has asthma, I think all bets are off. So uh, the, my, the paper provided me with uh, gloves and with an N95. So I now own an N95, which is, I guess, a blessing of some kind. It makes me feel a little guilty, to be honest. And I, when I got out of the car, I wore an N95 and gloves, right? And I, the guy who took me around wore an N95 too because he's doing food deliveries all over town. And I took, I was six feet away from everyone I talked to. And like the one thing with this virus that some doctors told me early, like you start to see it everywhere, right? Like, like when you pull your credit card out of the gas pump and you just touch the gas pump a little bit and you go, well, did I just touch the coronavirus? The odds are very low that I will. I know the science. The odds are very low. I will catch it that way, but you start to see it everywhere. So like, I was really careful. Um, and yeah, I did worry about it when I were there, but I worry like when I'm out in the world right now and I'm going to have to get past that at some point. But like, my son is the most important thing in all of this to me, which means I, I'm mentally prepared for the idea that he's not going to go to school for like two years. That's on the table here. So, all right. So you go up there and what are you looking for? What are you, what's your, what's your day like? Well, I've gotten a ton of people at that point, but on, on the way in, I drive past the nursing home and I drive slow and I go to the bottom of the hill and I turn around and I do it again and I do it again and I do it again just so I can see it. I don't want to park across the street from it and gawk at it. Um, but there was a hearse when I drove by and you see like the teddy bear on the front lawn. And later on you see some stuff I didn't put in the story. Like our, our local alt-right bullshit YouTube, um, hate factory. One of their guys was there filming himself outside. Uh, and they called the cops on him and all that. Right. And I didn't put that in the story cause it just would have complicated it a little bit. But, and then I, so I went down to the town. I met the guy I was going to meet. He took me to the supermarket. I wanted to talk to the person who worked at the supermarket because in a small town like that, that's such a fulcrum. Right. And I knew that they were, um, they were screening people at the entry. They said, uh, if you've been to China, if you're coming back from overseas, if you've been to Pinecrest nursing home, you cannot shop here. Um, but they also would deliver to anyone who worked at Pinecrest, right? But it had to turn, and the deli manager, as it happened, her mom was a nurse at Pinecrest and had COVID-19, right? So we, when I learned that, then I talked to her, right? Like, so you just, you just start talking to people. I talked to the woman who owns the biggest business in town as to what they were doing. And I just drove around the town, try to get a feel for it and just try to feel, and I, I sat outside the post office and watched it. And I sat outside the LCBO and I watched it. I sat what were you looking there. for? Just looking to see how, like, how quiet it really was. Everyone's called it a ghost town, but there were still people, right? You want to get a feeling for the activity. And then when you talk to people, they tell you what the activity usually would be. So you have a, you have a, a baseline in your mind. But I just wanted to feel what the town felt like. So I hung around there for probably five hours. I'm talking to, I probably talked to four or five people. I'd already talked to six or seven. Um, and then I drove home. Well, I drove to, uh, to our cottage, actually, because I needed to do some work there. Um, so I drove there and, and just sat down and started to figure out what it looked like. And I knew what the piece was, I thought, because um, the, thing with, the thing I wanted to do in this story is this is going to happen all across the country, right? Like a, you're, a lot of places are going to have this thing get into nursing homes, long-term care homes in big cities and small cities and your parents and your grandparents are going to go. My dad died in a long-term care home last year. So I kind of thought about that a lot. Um, and I wanted to, for, I wanted people to have a blueprint for what the grief is like and what the response is like. 
um, what it's like when people try to help each other and they can't in the way that t small towns do, which is presence. Uh, that's a, uh, one huge thing about this whole disease is that I talked to a girl who worked, uh, I, I talked to a few people who worked for funeral homes and I, I kind of put it in the voice of one of them. And like, if you work at a funeral home, you can't put your hand on someone's shoulder now, right? Like you have to tell people you cannot have more than five people at the funeral of your sister, of your child, of your father, right? Like in hospitals, they're trying to get iPads so you can say goodbye to people. That's the true cruelty of this disease is the separation of people. And I wanted to get at that. I wanted to get at what it's like when all this little town that's usually so bustling at this time of year, everyone's shutting their homes, right? And no one can be together to process grief. And that's kind of what I tried to get at. How does your brain come up with there's a difference between a quiet town and a silent one? I don't know. I, did that. I, I thought that before I went to Bob Cajun. I thought that that was the first thing I thought. I talked like talk to one person and they talked about how it was a ghost town. And I talked, and he, they also talked about how in the winter, it's really quiet there, right? Like the population goes down, it's cottage country. Um, and that just popped right into my head is like, it's a quiet little town for three quarters of the year. Um, and right now it should be starting to ramp up and it is, they're all, they're all describing it. They, they used, almost everyone used the word ghost town. And it, it was almost like it was literal, right? Like, like so many yeah. people, like the people in that home were like, your Sunday school teacher and the woman who used to own the dress shop on main street. Right. And this person used to come into the grocery store all the time. And this person who volunteered at this and this person who volunteered at this, because these towns are also run on volunteers. So yeah, I don't know. That's it's, uh, sometimes. And you've, I'm, you've had this, right? Like sometimes it just, it's just there. Right. Right. And that's what that was. It's very hard to explain every now and then. So yeah. How'd you, how'd you come up with that? I don't know. Just, yeah. I just, just, I heard it in my head. That's yeah, it. exactly. Yeah. Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who spends all her time these days watching Glee, using the TikToker, and popping rocks with the homie homes. And hanging out with the cool kids in school at 503-sports.com, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. The cool kids hang out at 503-sports.com? Well, where are we supposed to go? With our parents around, we can't vape. We can't get drunk on white Russians at the back of a 7-Eleven. We can't sneak into R-rated movies like Police Academy 4! This is so weird. Not really. These days, all the hip bros and bros are really into old school Tim Mazzetti Boston Breakers jerseys. So go to 503-sports.com and roll with the homies. Okay. Today, you had a column run. It tells me it's only a five minute read. It might have taken me seven. It says, Nova Scotia Rampage is an inhuman crime in a strangely inhuman time. And um, your lead was, life right now is steeped in, uh, in a sort of unreality. The monotony of enclosure, the stillness of life, the suspension of society as we knew it. Once in a while, you might ask yourself, is this really happening? Is this life now? And then came Nova Scotia, at least 18 people dead and one shooter. The RCMP said the number was at least 18 because the police were still searching house to house. The killer set fires before he moved on. It started in a quiet, pretty part of the world, in a place full of cottages and two-lane roads, blueberries and cheese farms. It lasted from Saturday night to Sunday morning, and there were 16 separate crime scenes. Innocents were shot dead on the side of the road or in their homes. In these strange days, we were still supposed to stay in our homes. It's freaking art, man. It's so freaking good. And like, but get aside from the tragedy and the awfulness, I love um, a place full of cottages and two-lane roads, blueberries and cheese farms. It's freaking great. Um, 
it's weird to compliment such an awful story that you just, I mean, it's well, like, Hey, yeah, no. Well, and, and that's a lot, that's a lot of what this job is, is you try to write hard things in a ways that people find meaningful and beautiful, right? Like, and, and the danger than that one was to overwrite. Cause like what happened in Nova Scotia is a pure horror. Like, and in Canada, we're not desensitized to it in a way that some of the United States is. This is the biggest mass shooting in Canadian history. It's at least 18 people plus the shooter. Um, and that's one thing, like, that, just that idea of, like, when you write, just in, from a writing standpoint, writing something like Blueberries and Cheese Farms, like, it's, it's funny how some things, I feel like, bring us back to how things used to be. It's funny how quickly we've forgotten how things used to be. Like, the other day, I thought, how much would I pay for, a, like, a fresh cheeseburger in a bar that's full but not too full and a beer? Like that, you know, those, those, that when you're in a bar or restaurant, what's full, it's just full enough, right? Yeah. It's not yeah. too much. That's a great feeling, right? It's an awesome feeling to be a part of. I was thinking about that the other day, but like, as all of this happens, as something like this happens, something so monstrous and so horrendous and so horrific, you have to place it in a world, in the world that existed before it happened, right? And that's the coronavirus too, is we still have to remember how things used to be. Um, and we have to look forward to how things will be in, in any way we can. And we have to kind of appreciate whatever we've got right now, because that's, again, that's, it's so hard to imagine what this thing really is. Um, and that like, I don't know, writing this today, I don't know, like this is, this is a level of grief that I, I don't think I got close enough to it. Um, but you could still feel it. Um, but so you wrote this, how many hours ago did you write this? Uh, I filed it at like, like three hours ago, I filed it, I think. And what is it like? Um, I don't know. What is it? What does it feel like when you file, when you're done and you write it and you're done? And, and again, instead of filing, you know, something about Kyle Lowry's free throw struggles, you're filing a piece about, you know, this mass shooting. Does it, when you let it go, does it feel any different than when you let a normal sports story go? Um, in a way, it doesn't in a purely technical way because you still want to – Mike Vaccaro had a great line about Olympics. He said, I'm going to write 60 columns here. Some of them are going to be in the bottom 20, right? <laughs> like, so, but you try to hit it as far as you can every day, right? There's a pressure to do the best you can every day, and that's the same now as it was then. I still, I still don't like, like turning out the lights and going – that was that was a seventy five percenter today. You just put you put seventy five percent of the effort in. You you didn't deliver. You slapped a single to the left, whatever it was. I don't like that feeling. So from that perspective, it's it's always an exhale, right? Like you just and some days it's 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 an easy swing, and some days it's hard. Um, in terms of the the weight of it, like when I finished Bob Cajun, and Bob Cajun was one where there was a lot of people and talked to like like I got I got closer to Bob Cajun than I think I did to this, but. When I finished Bob Cajun, I went outside and did three hours of work until the sunset. Just three hours of work on like clearing brush and like and uh, cutting down stuff and and just doing like physical, real physical work. And that was nice. That was I think I needed that after three days of just living in the Bob Cajun experience of just people being stolen. Right. Um, it's an interesting question though because. A lot of people have, have, have called or emailed and, and so even perfect strangers said, I just hope you're doing okay. I hope you're okay. Cause I've been living in coronavirus like all the time uh, for over a month now. I was tweeting about it for the, for weeks before. Um, and I am doing okay. 
but there is there is more of a heaviness in life now and in writing now just because again i'm i'm trying to live up to more and i'm trying to do a not a better job but a more a job that more rides on it you know and so yeah i do feel that a little bit not a ton yet but I, i'm sure it'll accumulate over time in a weird way it seems like you're more burdened you're less burdened by the stories you've been writing by then by the sort of huge enormous question mark of where this all heads and the sort of uncertainty and also the exasperating lack of um, seriousness that some seem to be still be applying to this. That's a really good point. It's a really good observation. I can see why you're so good at, at what you do. I can see why you're a great writer. Um, that's a really good point. I hadn't really thought about that, but part of it is like, I'm lucky, right? Like we have enough space. We have four kids. We have enough space. We have some outdoor space for them. That's, enormous. I think a lot of what people who live in one bedroom apartments, like we have a, a, a great friend of my daughter's, my eldest daughter. Um, they have like a one-year-old baby and a 10-year-old in a two-bedroom apartment. Like that's hard. What we have is not as hard. Um, and, and we're okay. Like I haven't lost my job. My wife hasn't lost her job, right? Like so many people have it worse than me. This could get harder. And in terms of where this goes, the funny thing is, in terms of, I think a lot about the big question about where this is going to go. I think I have to force myself to think in, in kind of bigger and harder ways, right? Like, when does Canada's food supply get hit? That's a big question and something I think about and talk, I've tried to talk to people a little bit about. It. I haven't gotten into it yet. Um, but I'm, I'm taking so much of this day by day because every day, Cam Cole, who's a great columnist in Canada for a long time, early on, he was the columnist of the paper where I started. And he told me like, every day at this job as a general columnist, it's like going to the moon. And by the end of the day, you need to have built something you can live in, right? Like you need to have built something functional. But every day is a new day and you don't get to start with anything on any of the days, right? Like, so it's like that every day. So I'm really, I'm taking it day by day. And I'm trying also to, I'm trying to take pleasure in like the in the in the good stuff right like I play a board game with my three eldest kids like almost every night I try to anyway yeah. um, which is great it takes your mind right off it's settlers of Catan they're really learning to bargain um, I try to we have a basketball hoop at the end of the driveway so I try to go out and get some shots up and work on my mid-range game while I can um, yeah. I try to take those little things and enjoy it but early in the early days of writing this actually it was more like boot camp because I was spending literally 15 hours a day in self-isolation writing coronavirus all the time Man. And that was a lot more. It's gotten easier in some ways. So what, um, what will happen tomorrow morning? Like you wake up, how does this go? I don't have anything planned for tomorrow morning. I will wake up and say hi to the kids and have breakfast and sit down and start to try to figure stuff out. I have one thing that I'm looking into a little bit, but I haven't gotten a lot back on it yet. Um, and I'll have my 10 o'clock meeting with the awesome kick-ass Toronto Star health and science reporters. And I'll be happy to see all their faces like I am every day and say hi to their kids as they wander into the frame. And then from like 10 to noon, if I don't know what I'm writing, I'm going to try to figure it out. And I try not to take days off unless I have, I know what I'm doing. But every day I'm trying to talk to people. I'm sending out stuff. I'm, I'm chasing, like I, I, I have people in different areas that I check in on, like different paramedics I check in on, different doctors I check in on, different nurses. So far they've been pretty good, which is a blessing. Um, and then by about the two o'clock story meeting at the star, I'm going to hope that I know what I'm doing. Um, like today they asked me to write this. And so I wrote this, um, most days I tell them what I think I'm going to write, but I, every day is like, like I say, there's like two hours in the middle of the day where I'm like, Oh no, 
am I, what am I good what, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? And I'm trying not to get paralyzed by too many options or not enough stuff or whatever it is. But I, I try to give them full value every day. And that's what I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. And we'll keep doing this as long as we need to, I guess. Is there any part of you in the way you miss going uh, to a bar for a burger and a beer that misses walking into a basketball arena, notepad, laptop, uh, sitting down, watching a basketball game? Or have you not even thought about that? It's funny. I, I haven't thought a lot about that yet because it's, I feel like it's so far away. I really do. I feel like it's so far away. Um, this is going to sound super self-congratulatory. Uh, during a, like a, a week or two into this, I got a text from a buddy who said, congratulations. I'm like, what is it? You've been nominated for a national newspaper award, which is our national awards. And it was for sports. And it felt like it was coming from another planet. Yeah. Right. It felt like just like a, like a message from another world. So I haven't thought about that a lot yet. Um, what I really miss and it's funny because like our, we have four kids. We, we're, we, have, we lead lives that are mostly centered around them. So I don't see my friends nearly as much as I'd like to. I miss the ability to go and see a friend and hug them. That's what I really miss. Like I miss my kids being like, the, I miss the chaos that happens in my house when one extra kid is added to the mix. Yeah. And all of a sudden they all get supercharged and they have an awesome time and entertain themselves or two kids or three kids or four kids. Like I miss that for them. Um, I was driving by Port Hope the other day and Chris Jones, a wonderful Love writer. Chris Jones. Yeah. yeah. I, I was like, every time I drive, like uh, my cottage between here and there, and every time I drive by, I'm like, I should go see Jones. And every once in a while I managed to do it. And like when I was coming back from Bob Cajun, I was like, man, I would love to go see Jones right now, man. I would love to go hug that bearded son of a bitch and like sit down and have a beer and like, just, just listen to him talk. Yeah. And you can't, I, I miss that. Um, I do. I'm sad the Olympics aren't happening this summer because the Olympics is something I look forward to. Like it's just, it's such an awesome challenge and test and every one of them is so memorable and such a, such a, it just feels great to have done kills you while you're doing it, but it feels so great to have done. Um, so when I do have a feeling right now where I'm, I, I should be in Boston covering a playoff series, right? I should be, I'm getting that feeling right now, but it's, this is so, there's so much to this that it hasn't, it hasn't hit me a lot yet. I guess sports feels so distant. Yeah. Like I get a little bit mad when the leagues start to try to do this bargaining bullshit where they go, you know, we're going to play with no fans. Oh yeah. Are you? So you're going to use, you're going to use 400 tests a day. Cause that's about what you're going to need. You can use 400 tests a day in a country where they can't test doctors so that people can watch weird concentration camp basketball or baseball or hockey. Like where you like put the athletes on the bus and send them right back to the hotel and they're not allowed to go out. Like that's just, I don't know. Like I, I want sports to come back, but I want sports to come back because if it comes back in a responsible way with the proper public health protocols in place, it means we've beaten this thing. Right. When we, the first, the first game where there's 20,000 people in an arena or 40 or 50 or 70,000 people, it's going to be fucking awesome. Yeah. And, and, and only if, we, no one in that arena is worried about catching the coronavirus from somebody else, right? Like, that's what it's got to feel like. And that's going to mean we fucking won. And that's what, that's what I want sports back, man. Yeah, well said. Uh, well, Bruce, I got to say, seriously, you, uh, you've been just a great, great job on this. Really freaking brilliant. And um, I know it's hard. I know it's soul-sucking at times. And... I apologize on behalf of my country for my fucking dumbass, <laughs> embarrassing 
I wrote a book about the USFL. I warned people, nobody <laughs> listened to me. Nobody listened, but um, you've done a great, seriously, it's just great work. And I, uh, I really appreciate you doing this. I do. Jeff, thank you so much for this. This is really, I really enjoyed this. Uh, I really appreciate that you subscribed to the Toronto star. Um, <laughs> and I, I just appreciate that, that, that you do this podcast and that you, you approach writing the way you do and that you, you approach advice on writing the way you do. I think I really, I don't think I've ever told you that, but I, for a long time, I've just thought it's really awesome. It's awesome that you give, um, you give it to what you do and then you give tools and lessons from that to other people. It's fucking fantastic. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I want to thank today's guest, Bruce Arthur, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Bruce on Twitter at Bruce underscore Arthur and read his work in the Toronto Star. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on pretty much any podcast medium, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.